Take your copy of God's Word and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We will continue through this powerful letter that the Apostle Paul has written to the troubled church in the city of Corinth. We'll begin this morning in verse 7. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 7. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you in my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. We'll stop there this morning. In 2019, much of American society stopped for just a moment to witness the apparently miraculous conversion of Kanye West, a rapper who was anything but godly up to that point in life. They witnessed his conversion apparently to Christianity. In a 2013 album, in a song, using that term loosely by 1980s standards, in which he talked to Jesus... He declared, quote, I am a God, end quote. It was blasphemous and recognized as such by many in Christendom. So you can imagine the shock when in 2019 his then wife, Kim Kardashian, announced that, quote, he has had an amazing evolution of being born again and being saved by Christ, end quote. Kanye went on to confirm that himself and almost immediately began having Sunday services, which, of course, he led, essentially acting as a minister. That's really not shocking for somebody that has historically been quite struck on themselves anyway, and certainly for a new convert to the Christian faith. I mean, he didn't know the Bible. That was apparent. It shouldn't have been expected. I mean, if he's truly been converted, he doesn't know the Scripture. That's normal. The surprise was, though, that many long-time Christians seemed to accept Kanye as a man they ought to listen to. It wasn't only Joel Osteen's of the world that allowed him to speak, though one of Kanye's first public appearances was at Lakewood Church, using that term loosely, where Joel Osteen pastors, I guess that's not the biggest shock. The biggest shock is that some people who should have known better immediately began to listen to him like he was 
a, a, a long-time veteran behind a pulpit. Some in post-mill ranks even happily tweeted about Kanye's conversion with a hashtag dat post mill attached to it as if this is going to usher in the kingdom. I guess that's not shocking since Kanye is quoted as saying, an awakening is coming. All the while, the Bible is extremely clear that a recent convert... A novice, as the old King James puts it, should not be leading worship anywhere, in any church or any, any type of religious service. Now understand, I, I'm not here to judge Kanye's conversion experience, his salvation. There remain some significant issues in his life. You can Google those if you're interested. Maybe that's what we should expect by a man who is a recent convert. He's still sorting some things out. He has a, a very speckled past. I don't know, but judging him is not my point this morning at all. I share all of this to ask this question. Why were so many quick to accept Kanye West as some sort of Christian mentor? Someone to allow on stage to speak to Christians. Someone even to allow behind a pulpit. Why were people so anxious to receive Him? Well, there's two reasons. First, He has a compelling stage presence. That's a fact. He is gifted, though He has used His gifts in a sinful manner, he still yet has a very compelling stage presence. Secondly, he is quite articulate to be able to communicate his belief system. Whatever it is, he, he is good at that. Those are things that have a major impact on Americans today. The ability to have a stage presence and the ability to articulate yourself well. But if they are important here in America in 2023, they were even more important in Corinth in the first century. Listen, Americans love a celebrity. We are enamored by someone with a compelling personal presence who can tell us what they think. That works for politicians in Washington, D.C. It works for actors on the big screen, and sadly, it works in many pulpits in America and around the world today. Look, this is, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is battling in the city of Corinth. It is precisely what he has in mind here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 through 13. People who have come in with a compelling stage presence and an ability to articulate themselves very well and they have hoodwinked the church. So we began looking at this final section of this letter last week. We looked at verses 1 through 6 here of chapter 10. And Paul begged the Corinthian church, at least many in the church, to reject the teaching of the false teachers before he, Paul, visited the city so he would not have to, quote, show boldness when he arrived. He wanted them to fix it. Paul defended his gospel techniques, his, his preaching, saying that it had the power, the divine power, to destroy strongholds. Paul meant that part of his work as an apostle, 
and a faithful preacher was to expose error and to demolish it. And he was ready to do so in person when he arrived in Corinth if things had not been straightened out by the time he got there. Now Paul's hope was that the church would self-correct. His hope was that they would self-correct before he arrived, even through the action of church discipline and excommunication if necessary, at least with their own members. They had no authority over the false teachers that had crept in, but they could shut the door and keep them out for certain. That's, that's where we left off last week. We are literally right in the middle of Paul's argument against these intruders, these false teachers. The name of my sermon here this morning in verses 7 through 12 is an impartial standard. An impartial standard. In this text, Paul exposes the danger of accepting claims of religious authority without actually testing those claims. All right, let's look at what he says here in the text and then we'll have some comments at the end. So verse 7 begins by saying, look at what is before your eyes. Look at what is before your eyes. Now, if you happen to be reading along this morning in a New King James or a New American Standard, Blake, this may be rendered more as a corrective question or even a statement. The New King James says, do you look at things according to outward appearance? Question mark. The New American Standard says, are you looking at, or excuse me, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. So it's really a condemning statement or a condemning question either way. Now admittedly, that is a possible reading of this Greek text. And it's strengthened by the fact that the Corinthians were often very guilty of looking at things from a worldly point of view. There's no question about that. However, I think the ESV is right, and I'm going to offer you a couple of reasons that I think they are correct to render this as a command. First of all, the Greek verb blepite, here rendered look, is in the imperative in literally every other place Paul uses the word. It is a command. It is a an imperative. That's very compelling that Paul uses this word as an imperative everywhere else. He, he doesn't offer it as a question. Secondly, it fits the context as an imperative, as a command. Let me show you. Paul is saying, look at what is before your eyes. Or we might say, look at what is patently obvious. Paul is asking them to look at him and then glance over at the intruders and see who has done more for them. Who has been more faithful to the church and more faithful to the truth? Is it the false teachers or is it the Apostle Paul? Look at the obvious facts, Paul says. And then he defends himself against the ridiculous charges of the false teachers by pointing out things that the Corinthian saints already knew, but they chose to ignore. So Paul says, look at the facts. Look at the facts. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also 
are we? So the false teachers were confidently asserting that they were Christ's. To which Paul replies, so are we. So are we. I mean, if the false teachers had the right to make such a claim, Paul then, in turn, had the right to make the exact same claim. You may notice the singular here. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, some commentators think this is talking about one person in particular, probably the ringleader of the false teachers, though it's, it's possible Paul's just using general language. If anyone makes a claim that he's Christ's, so are we. All the false teachers were certainly making this claim. So what does this mean? That, that they're confident that they're Christ's. Well, it's highly unlikely that they were suggesting that we're real Christians and Paul isn't. Like, that's, that's very unlikely. The Corinthian saints had entertained doubts about Paul's preaching, sure, but it is very doubtful they would receive a message suggesting that Paul was not a Christian at all. I mean, that, that is unlikely what they're saying. Paul is going to immediately, after this, go on to defend his authority, and throughout this section, he's going to defend his apostolic office and calling. So there's more going on here than them simply declaring that they are Christian. It's far more likely that these false teachers were claiming a higher authority and thus a higher knowledge than what the Apostle Paul possessed. Here's what D.A. Carson writes, quote, The false apostles claimed to belong to Christ in some special sense, end quote. Kent Hughes says, quote, Paul's detractors' claims to be of Christ were not simply claims to be Christians, rather they were elitist assertions that they believed that they were part of Christ in some special way, end quote. To use a phrase I've heard tossed around occasionally, they believed and even boldly declared that they were the elect of the elect. David Garland says that it likely had something to do with a special relationship to Christ that, quote, bestows some kind of distinctive authority as Christ's servant or apostle, end quote. So they seem to have claimed that they alone had some sort of authority. And they denied that Paul, Paul, of all people, the one who was personally called by Jesus on the road to Damascus that we just studied about. The man God used to save these people's soul and establish the church. The false teachers were asserting that Paul lacked the authority that they had. Laughable. This is exactly why the apostle is defending himself against, and, and listen to this, this is important, this is precisely why Paul is going to assert that a claim of such magnitude is nothing more than a claim without biblical justification, without scriptural support. That's what he's defending himself against. All right, let's move on. Verse 8. 
For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. So you can, you can feel the hesitancy in Paul when he's writing this. This is not something Paul is flaunting. He does not want to boast a little too much of his authority. That, that's not what he wants to do. You know, in my experience, people claiming authority over everyone else in the world are rarely slow to boast about it. They certainly don't have this hesitant approach of the Apostle Paul here. But it's not Paul's practice to boast of his authority. And he actually had authority. Rooted in Scripture. We don't have any doubt of this. Rather than wielding his authority, though, for self-promotion... Paul saw the authority given to him directly from Christ as that which was to build up the church at Corinth. Not only them, of course, but this letter's written to them, so we'll deal with it here in its context. Paul was not out to destroy them, even though he had written them some very sharp letters. Paul's goal was correction, edification, so that they would grow in a healthy way. Guys, look, Paul is clear in writing young Timothy. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Only truth can correct in a healthy way. Way. You may be corrected by error, but it's not improving you in a healthy way. Only truth can correct in a healthy way. These intruders, these false teachers in Corinth, were oppressive. They weren't building up like Paul was doing, they were oppressive. They were dividing the church rather than building it up. Paul was intent in growing the church into maturity. You can see just a major contrast in goals between these two. You may recall that our Lord in John 17 prayed, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Look, Paul was well aware of Jesus' teaching. And he believed it wholeheartedly. And so Paul sought to build them up with the truth. Even when that truth happened to wound them when it cut, when it grieved them, when it reproved and corrected. And notice verse 9. He says, I do not want to appear to be frightening with you or frightening you with my letters. Like, but Paul's not just writing them to scare them. He's not using a fear tactic. He's, Paul is, is, is likely addressing a charge leveled against him by the false teachers here. That's going to become very clear here, here in just a moment. First though, remember Paul had written a very sharp letter to the saints in Corinth. Just before this one. We, it hasn't survived for us today. We've talked about it quite a bit in our study, but he's written a very sharp letter to the saints in Corinth, a letter delivered by Titus. It's often referred to as the severe letter. In that letter, 
Paul corrected the church in a very stern manner. Back in chapter 7, verse 8, Paul says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. In other words, it, the moment that he sent it out, he began to say, I don't know if I should have said this. This is harsh. This is strong. This is sharp. Paul described a weighty letter, a letter which he admits grieved them initially. But he didn't write merely to be severe. Like his, his intent was not merely to frighten them. Paul wanted them to repent of their toleration of false teaching and false teachers and grow up. Grow up in the truth. And yet his opponents, his opponents took this personal presence of Paul, which was mild, and this strong way that he wrote to them, he took, they took this and twisted it against Paul and used it to knock him. Look at verse 10. For they say, this is the false teachers. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. They, the, the, the intruders, the Paul's opponents, the false teachers who had weaseled their way into the church and had hoodwinked some of the membership there. They say his letters are weighty and strong. Well, as I said last week, they would be accusing Paul of what we call today a, a keyboard warrior. He's willing to write to you when he's not here and be heavy, but when he's in person, he's just a coward. Look, Paul doesn't really deny this. His letters were weighty and strong because every time he wrote them a letter, he's responding to some bad report that he's gotten about them. It's understandable that they were weighty and strong. Even Peter in 2 Peter says, quote, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these manners. Listen to what Peter says about Paul's letters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. So if you struggle understanding Paul, Peter did too. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. That's 2 Peter 3, 16 and 17 if you're interested in that. By the way, Peter equates Paul's letters to the other Scriptures. He confirms Paul's epistles then to be canonical, Scripture breathed out by God. And though Peter is not writing to the saints in Corinth, he is well aware that false teachers in that day were twisting Paul's teachings to benefit themselves and promote false doctrine. He knew that was going on. Well, the intruders in Corinth saw the meatiness in Paul's letters. That's not the knock. Here's the knock. By their standards, Paul wasn't much to look at or to listen to in person. Remember what I said in the introduction. There were two things 
vitally important in Corinth for rhetoricians, orators, public speakers. First, they were required to have a commanding personal presence. Secondly, they must have possessed an impressive speaking ability. And according to these false teachers, Paul's bodily presence was weak and his speech was of no account. He didn't fit the bill. By their worldly standards, Paul did not possess a commanding presence, first of all. H.A. Ironside writes this, quote, The Greeks particularly admired splendid physique, as we may see from the many magnificent statues that they left behind. End quote. We can see those today. We know this is true. And apparently that does not describe Paul. Now, this is not inspired scripture, so take it for what it's worth. But one physical description of the Apostle Paul has survived apparently from the first century. Again, not inspired, not in the Bible, but it's been somewhat accepted. It's in a book called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. And here's what it says of Paul. Quote, A man of middling size, his hair was scanty, his legs were a little crooked, his knees were projecting, or they were, they were far apart. He had large eyes, his eyebrows met, and his nose was somewhat long. End quote. That certainly doesn't reflect what we see in Greco-Roman art as the prime example of a man, right? That's his personal presence, so it's not commanding according to them. And his speech is of no account, they said, It is interesting that when we get to Acts 14, we're going to see that the people of Lystra were quite impressed with the speaking ability of Paul. He was the lead speaker there. But here in Corinth, particularly the false uh, teachers, were very much unimpressed with the speaking of Paul. What's the explanation for that? I actually think Paul spoke this way on purpose in Corinth. He hints to it in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says this, quote, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, for I decided... So this, is, this is a choice that Paul made. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Listen, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. He did not preach in the way the orators preached, on purpose, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might rest not, or your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It seems that Paul knew precisely what impressed people most in Corinth, and he purposely did not use the tactics of the orators when he was there. Listen, Paul had the ability to speak as well as anybody else when he desired. Paul was naturally intelligent, and he was highly educated. He was a good speaker but he didn't play their games. At least in Corinth, Paul spoke in plain terms. 
He did not use the oratorical skills they prized. They were not influenced then by his abilities, but by the power of the Word of God. That's that's what he sought there. But the false teachers used this to their advantage. They said his speech is of no account. He's not like the great orators of Greco-Roman society. His speaking amounts to nothing, the NIV says. Well, Paul has a word for them. Look at verse 11. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do or we will do when present. If they want to fight, Paul's willing to give them one. Now, he was very clear back in verse 2. When he wrote to the church, he said, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Paul did not want a fight. He was not picking a fight. But he knew that battle sometimes must be fought. You know, when I was working through this passage, an old country song kept coming to mind. Some of you old folks will at least appreciate this. In 1979, Kenny Rogers released this song about a boy named Tommy whose father had gone off to prison and he ultimately died in prison when Tommy was 10 years old. The name of the song was The Coward of the County. On his deathbed, his father's deathbed, Tommy's father's deathbed, his father begged him not to make the same mistakes that he had made, that he needed to learn to turn the other cheek. Son, you don't have to fight to be a man is a major theme of that song. But as the narrative of the song progressive, while Tommy was at work, three Gatlin boys assaulted his girlfriend, Becky. And when he returned home to find this out, he had to make a decision. Am I going to defend Becky or am I going to follow my dying father's instruction? Well, as the song goes, Tommy ended up beating up these three boys and declaring to his dead father's memory, Papa, I sure hope you understand, sometimes you got to fight when you're a man. Paul's attitude here almost perfectly mirrors Tommy's. Sometimes you got to fight if you're a man. Paul's not looking for trouble. He's not the one picking the fight. He's not even out to defend himself. He's not out to defend his own personal honor. The stakes were much higher than that. The Corinthian saints and their faith had been moved off the proper foundation and the gospel was being corrupted by these false teachers. And so even though Paul was not looking for a fight, he was willing to. He was willing to do battle considering what was at stake. Look, every little thing is not worth fighting over. It's not. We must wisely pick our battles. But sometimes a war must be fought. This is one of those times. This then brings us to Paul's analysis of these false teachers. And this is mind-blowing. Look at verse 12. 
This begins really his analysis of these false teachers, but it goes on into the next section as well. But we're going to stop here today. Verse 12, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. And I'm embarrassed to say that almost perfectly describes some of the Bible conferences that I've been to over the years. Many of them are nothing more than rah-rah cheerleading parties where people gather simply to you know, pick up one another, pat one another on the back, and talk about everybody else who's outside of the four walls. And if somebody dares get up and preach the Bible, you can see people just start to yawn and doze off. Listen, the way of the world in Corinth, and in America for that matter, the way of orators was to compare themselves with one another so that they impress their listeners with amazing rhetorical skills. Paul says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not comparing myself to them because that's a faulty standard. They aren't the standard. Why do I care if I'm better or worse than, than them? Notice what he says, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Or maybe it could be translated this way. They are only comparing themselves with each other, using themselves as the standard of measurement. How ignorant. John MacArthur in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, says this, quote, They invented their own personal standards for greatness, met them, and then proudly proclaimed their superiority. End quote. Guys, look, if we make the standard, we're going to meet that standard. If all a preacher has to do to be deemed faithful is dress in a coat and tie, read his text from the King James, and spout a bunch of random statements that people agree with, that can easily be accomplished. That's not difficult. If we did that here, you'd leave every single week believing you were the elite of the elite, and you'd miss out on all of the correction that the Bible has for each and every one of us. Man-made standards are useless and faulty, for that matter. They're of zero benefit. None. Listen, if someone makes the claim to be the elect of the elect, that claim has to be supported by Scripture. I mean, actual exegetical work, drawing the meaning out of the biblical text. The moment someone begins arguing from a history book or inserting their own preconceived notions into the text is the moment we should start saying, I've had enough. Listen to me. This is big. Listen. A claim is just that. A claim if it is not rooted in the infallible, unchanging, and impartial standard of the Word of God. These false teachers in Corinth were making claims they couldn't back up. So, 
They measured themselves by one another and compared themselves with one another. And in doing so, Paul says they've exposed that they're without understanding. Or as one commentator put it, they're completely clueless. I'm always hesitant to to read a a, a lengthy quote, but I do want to read one by D.A. Carson because he says something so much better than I think I could say it. He, he really gets at what Paul is saying here. If you read this on Facebook, I posted it on Facebook the other day, so you're ahead of the game. It's not super long, but it's a little bit long. Here's what D.A. Carson says, quote, It is always true that the lack of an objective standard is folly. If we as Christians are to stand against the tide of modern relativism, whether in our churches or in the broader society, we shall have to fill our minds with the Word of God, well digested and integrated, and learn to think our way from God's thoughts to our situation with prayerful humility and a profound desire to assess all things, ourselves included, by criteria less arbitrary and relative than the shifting standards of the surrounding culture, end quote. All all I can say, if you caught all that, is amen, amen, and amen. We, We must judge all things, here's what he's saying, inside and outside by the only standard God has ever given. And that's the Word of God. While I'm at it, we are not to judge by inner promptings and a clear conscience. Those things are not infallible. There are people involved in very sinful actions that say, I'm not really convicted about it. Well, that doesn't matter. If it it contradicts this book, your conviction is irrelevant. Only the Word of God, rightly interpreted and understood in context, as originally intended, is a reliable standard. Now, my thesis statement this morning was this. In this text... Paul exposes the danger of accepting claims of religious authority without actually testing those claims. I hope you can see why I said that's what he was doing. But let me offer a few more precise applications just in case you didn't pick up on it. These men, these intruding false teachers were full of themselves. And you know what the primary subject of their preaching was? Themselves. On the other hand, Paul was full of Christ. And that was his message, the New Covenant ministry that we looked at so much earlier in this book. The false teachers created their own standard. They met it. They had no objective standard, no unbiased standard. And as a result, they viewed themselves far too highly and actual biblical ministries, like, I don't know, the Apostle Paul, far too low. Let me also mention while we're here, there were Gnostic problems in the first few centuries of church history, and we begin to see that addressed in the epistles. John seems to speak of it in most of his writings Paul addresses it head-on in Colossians, but it's very likely even here that these intruders in Corinth 
these men who claimed a closer relationship with Jesus than anybody else, including Paul, it's likely that they were making Gnostic claims too. Now let me explain what that is. I know some of you are like zoning out. We don't know what Gnostic is. Let me tell you. I can't get into everything Gnostics believe, but I'll mention a couple of things. They were dualists, first of all. They believed that matter was good, I mean matter was bad and spirit was good. You know, even human bodies, evil. Spirit good, bodies bad. Well, as a result of that, they embraced all types of physical sin. Anything that you can name, because your body's bad anyway, the spirit's not going to sin, the, the body's going to be sin anyway. So they justified their own sin in this. They had a really messed up view of Jesus. So much so that some of them did not even believe He had a physical body. Because a body is evil. Right? You can actually see John addressing that whole idea. 1 John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands. He is saying Jesus had a physical body. When He was hung on the cross, He was hung there in a physical body. And in His body, He paid for our sins until it was finished. And then His physical body died and was buried in the ground and it was His physical body that rose again from the grave. That's the point that John is making. Well, there's more to Gnostic belief than that, but their biggest issue really is brought out in this text. Their foundational issue is that they believed they had a special insight. They had special knowledge that no one else possessed. Thus the name of the cult, Gnostics. It's from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. Listen, any group at all claiming special Knowledge above everyone else is at least the first cousin to the Gnostics and should be regarded as such. Here's the truth. God has given us a book with everything He wants us to know. That's the truth. And every believer with the Spirit of God can understand this book if you read it and study it. I'm not saying we're all going to completely understand it. I'm not saying we're all going to understand it at the same level. God often has gifts in the church. I'm not getting into all of that. There are hard things in the Bible. But the big picture stuff, specifically the gospel, you can understand if you're a believer. Now I say all that to say this, Gnosticism is still alive today. There are a number of groups out there claiming to have some type of special knowledge, a special word from the Lord, usually revealed to them apart from Scripture. So when you encounter that, just turn around and run. Take off. Their extra-biblical ideas are their standard. Paul addresses that here in this text. What does Paul say? The Bible alone is to be our standard. And any religious teaching outside of the Bible, we reject. And any religious teaching contrary to the Bible, we reject. Any teaching that twists the message of Scripture to fit a system, we reject. Now there are ministries much akin to these false teachers that we see 
operating in contemporary America. Ministries that operate much unlike Paul, where system preachers make claims they simply cannot back up and boast of knowledge they do not actually have. Usually in these types of groups, they use fear to keep people in line. The very thing Paul says he wasn't using, right? Paul says, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to frighten you. I'm not, I'm not trying to make you fearful. I'm just trying to correct you so you grow. But usually in these type groups, they fear or they use fear to keep people in line. Leave us and you're going to be shunned. Well, that's supposed to be what the Amish do, right? But that's, that's used in all kinds of groups out here. Contradict us and you're going to lose God's blessing on your life. Get in line or you'll be on the side of the enemies of Christ. If you ain't with us, you don't love Jesus. Or maybe you don't love the Lord and His church. Don't oppose the man of God or you're opposing God Himself. And the list just goes on and on. On the flip side, if you're in, if you're accepted, you're loved. You're the cream of the crop. You're the elite of the elite. You're the elect of the elect. No matter how anemic your knowledge of Scripture may be, no matter how many heretical statements you may make along the way, no matter how little your life is committed to serving the Lord and loving people, it doesn't matter if you're in, you're in. And these, these false teachers, they were in. Because they were comparing themselves to themselves. And they were coming out the winners on the other side. You say, that's a theological mess. What are we to do? There's good news. God has given us an absolute standard. And it's not the man standing behind the pulpit. It's not. What people may say about you matters none, really. Not if you're following Scripture. That's our standard, the Word of God. And if we seek to learn and follow the Word of God, we have done all that we've ever been asked to do. Now look, a church must make judgments about its teachers, holding them accountable for preaching the Bible. And what, that is precisely what Paul is telling this assembly of saints here in Corinth to do. Style mattered in Corinth. Paul says no substance matters. Style is not important. Finely attired orators were extremely important in Paul's day. And they make a lot of headway in our own. But look, finely attired preachers don't matter at all if they aren't preaching the text of Scripture. I've told you this before. I'll take a preacher in jeans and a t-shirt that cuts it straight over a preacher in a Versace suit exegeting the white spaces in the middle of the text. In our day, people are often judged on supposed achievements. If a church goes to hire a pastor, they want to know how many baptisms he had last year, how many uh, walls have they had to knock out and build and all of these things, right? How, how, many, how many members are there of the church? We want to know what kind of grand ministries that they've built and such. I'm not suggesting there's nothing to progress and growth. Paul founded this church. These people were saved under his ministry and he's going to make that point. Like progress is something. 
But it is not the standard for faithfulness. Well, there are some men that have grown some just outright heretical ministries in America and, and other countries, I'm sure. But you know, it's not only the judging of achievements. Sometimes in our day, people actually brag of their lack of achievement. That may sound odd to some of you, but I've heard it. It usually goes something like this. Look, our building is empty. Everybody has left us because we are the only ones faithful in the entire town. Maybe the whole state. Maybe the southeast. And look, while the truth is not always popular, the lack of achievement is no more the standard than a grand achievement. The standard is Scripture. You know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Well, that's serious. And guys, listen, the only way to know what God thinks... The only way to prepare for the judgment seat of Christ is to get in this book, see what it says, and try to do the things that it tells us to do. Now let me end with this. Sometimes war is necessary. It's not always necessary. A lot of people fire bullets that didn't have to be fired. But sometimes war is necessary. You know, when I was first saved, I had a fire, draw, aim mentality. That's not good. That's not healthy. We need to learn the meekness and gentleness of Christ that Paul talks about here in this text. And we need to follow the example of humility displayed by Paul here in this text. But, but, there are times when the truth is at stake, when the gospel is at stake, when the trinity is at stake, when souls are at stake, when we're presented with errors which cause great harm or perhaps even could cause great harms to the souls of men and then it is time to take up the sword and fight. Lord, help us to fight when necessary. And help us to do so in the manner in which we see Paul wage war here in this text before us this morning. Stand with me, if you will.